Good morning, everyone. Happy Sunday. Hope everybody had a good week. Wormy, get there. You hear all that extra noise in the background because I got my cat in here with me today. And it can get a little bit loud, so don't mind that. So anyways, chapter 12. It was a sad chapter. And uh, we lost Lucy and we lost John. Flower, we lost John and his daughter Lucy, the flower of Utah. And once the word got out that they escaped, uh, the ruthless Mormons were on the hunt for them. Our travelers made it out of the perimeter of the, of the church. And after pushing with sheer determination, they thought they were in a good place to stop for a rest. And they thought that they lost their uh, would-be pursuers. Feeling assured they were okay for a bit, Jefferson decided to do some hunting, get some food for them. And while chasing down his game and hunting and taking a couple of wrong turns, getting back to the campsite, which were about five hours had passed, it took a long time. As he got closer, he tried to call out, hoping to hear a response, but he had never heard nothing. Started getting a little worried, so he dropped his game and he ran to the camp. After a quick look, he realized his worst thoughts might have come, come to light. He discovers John's grave, and there's no sign of Lucy anywhere. So in a desperate attempt, he keeps moving forward. He makes it to the outskirts of the Mormon settlement, and he runs into an old acquaintance over there. I think Cowper was his name. And begs him to tell him what the hell is going on. Come to find out, Stangerson Jr. shot old John Ferrier, and Lucy was forced into a marriage with Dreber of the one of the two sons of the four elders. Then he was told that Lucy, Lucy had died because she just lost the will to live and was completely unhappy and just didn't want to live anymore. That night he went and seen the, his dead fiance, snuck in there, gave her a kiss on the forehead, took the engagement ring off her hand and left just as fast as he came in. And now as he was leaving, he said, she will not be buried with this. And he vows to make the, these two pay for what they, the crimes they committed against John Ferrier and his beloved Lucy. With the ring in his pocket, that was the infinite symbol of their love. Now that the ring is a symbol of deep-seated revenge. Let me repeat that. So after he gets the, uh, kisses the girl, in the, the dead girl on the forehead and takes the ring, now, remember, too, that he's inside this, we'll say, this uh, waiting room with the casket. Sneaks in, scares the crap out of the women that are in there. And then when he leaves, he yells, she's not going to be buried in this. So he vows to make these two pay for the crimes they committed against John Ferrier and his beloved Lucy. With the ring in his pocket that was the infin infin infinity symbol of their love, now that the ring is a symbol of deep-seated revenge. So it went from a good thing to a, let's just say, a point of exacting revenge. Years go by, he follows them all over the United States. The last stops in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, the, the two fellas, uh, Jeff Stangerson and uh, Drebber, realize that he's there looking at them, chasing them down. So they call the authorities to have Jefferson Hope arrested. And he's in jail for a month or two. And then we kind of find out the three of them are in London. And we know what happened when they got to London. So now we're going to continue on with chapter 13. Chapter 13 
And we're back in London. The title of chapter 13 is A Continuation of the Remnants of John H. Watson. So here we go. Our prisoner's furious resistance does not apparently indicate any ferocity in his disposition toward ourselves. For on finding himself powerless, he just smiled in an affable manner, expresses hope that he thought would hurt anyone, that he didn't hurt everybody in the scuffle it is his head. So I guess you're going to take me to the police station, he said to Sherlock Holmes. My cab's at the door. If you loose my legs, I'll walk down to it. I'm not so light to lift anymore as I used to be. Gregson and Lestrade exchanged glances as if they thought this proposition rather a bold one. But Holmes at once took the prisoner out of his word, loosened the rope which had bound around his ankles. He rose and stretched his legs as though to assure himself that they were free once more. I remember that I thought to myself as I eyed him that I had seldom seen a more powerfully built man and his dark sunburned face bore an expression of determination and energy which was formidable at his personal strength. If there's a vacant place for, for the chief of police, I reckon you are the man for it, he said to gazing with undisguised admiration at uh, Sherlock Holmes, or as uh, Watson says, my fellow lodger. The way you kept me on my trail was a caution. You had better come with me, said Holmes to the two detectives. I can drive you, said Lestrade. Good, and Gregson, come inside with me. You too, doctor. You have taken a nurse in this case. You may as well stick with us. I assented gladly. We all descended together. So as you know, Watson is narrating this part of the book. Our prisoner made no attempt at escape. He stepped calmly into the cab which had been his, and we followed him. Lestrade mounted the box, whipped up the horse, and brought us to the very short time to our destination. We were ushered into a small chamber where a police inspector noted down our prisoner's name and the names of the men whose murder he had been charged with. The official was a white-faced, unemotional man. We went through his duties in a dull, mechanical way. The prisoner will be put before the magistrates in the course of this week, he said. In the meantime, Mr. Jefferson Hope, have you everything you wish to say? And I must warn you that the words you'll be taken down you may be used against you. Jefferson replies, I have a good deal to say. I want to tell you gentlemen all about it. I'm having you better reserve that for your trial, asked the inspector. I may never be, be tried, he answered. You didn't look startled. It isn't suicide I'm thinking of. Are you a doctor? He turned his fierce, dark eyes upon me as he asked this last question. Yes, I am, I answered. They put your hand here, he said with a smile, motioning with his magnetical wrist towards his chest. I did so and became once conscious of an extraordinary throbbing commotion which was going on inside. The walls of his chest seemed to be thrill and quiver as a frail building would do inside when some powerful engine was at work. In the silence of the room, I could hear a dull humming and a buzzing noise which proceeded from the source. Why, I cried, you have an erotic aneurysm. That's what they call it, he said placidly. I went to the doctor's last week about it, and he told me that it was been, it's bound to burst before many days past. It has been getting worse for years. I got it from overexposure and underfeeding among the Salt Lake Mountains. I've done my work now. I don't care how, if I go soon or not. But I should like to leave the, some account of the business behind me. I don't want to be remembered as a common cutthroat. So he wants to clear the record, clear the air, explain his actions. The inspector and the two detectives had hurried disgustingly as to the advisability of allowing him to tell the story. 
Do you consider, Doctor, that there is immediate danger with the former her just asked? Most certainly there is, I answered. In that case, it's clearly our duty in the interest of the justice to take a statement, said the inspector. You are at liberty, sir, to give your account, which I warn you will be taken down. I'll sit down with your leave, the prisoner said, suiting the action to the word. This aneurysm of mine makes me feel easily tired, and the tussle we had half an hour ago has not mended matters. Okay, so now we're right back to the point where uh, Sherlock threw the handcuffs on him and took him down to the uh, to the brig. This is where we're back in London. So we're right back where we left off before he went to the United States. I think most of you remember that. Uh, I won't go back and search for it, but this is just when, uh, remember that, when a young kid went down there and asked Jefferson to go up to the top of the stairs at Baker Street, and Sherlock handcuffed him. So it says here, this aneurysm of mine makes me easily tired, and the tussle we had half an hour ago has not mended matters. I'm on the brink of the grave. I'm not likely to lie to you. Every word I have to say is the absolute truth. And as you, and how you use it is a matter of no consequence to me. So he's saying, I'm going to tell you what happened truthfully. I don't care. I'm going to be dead soon anyway. So what do I got to lie for? Which is a good point. With these words, Jefferson Hope leaned back in his chair and began the following remarkable statement. He spoke in a calm, methodical manner, as though the events which he narrated were commonplace enough. I can vouch for the accuracy of this subjoined account, for I have had access to the strange notebook in which the prisoner's words were taken down exactly as they were uttered. So Watson is saying what I'm about to tell you is exactly word for word what was said. It doesn't matter much to you why I hated these men, he said. It's enough that they were guilty of the death of two human beings, a father and a daughter, and they had, therefore, forfeited their own lives. After the lapse of time had that has passed since their crime, it was impossible for me to secure a conviction against them in any court. I knew of their guilt, though, and I determined that I should be judge, jury, and executioner all rolled into one. You'd have done the same if you had any manhood in you at all, if you're in my place. That girl I spoke of was to have married me 20 years ago. She was forced into marrying that same drever and broke her heart over it. I took the marriage ring from her dead finger and I vowed that this dying eye should rest upon that very ring and that this last thing should, the last thought should be of the crime for which he was punished. I have carried a boat with me and followed him and his accomplice for over two continents until I caught them. They thought to tire me out, but they could not do it. If I die tomorrow, as is likely enough, I die knowing that my work in this world is done and well done. They have perished by my hand. There is nothing left for me to hope or for me to desire. So basically, he just, you know what? I got my revenge. They killed my Lucy. Now they're both dead. So, why do you say that? Uh, fair and square. They were rich, and I was poor. So that was no easy matter for me to follow them. When I got to London, my pocket was about empty, and I found that I must turn my hand to something, turn my hand to something for, for a living. Driving and riding are as natural as to me as walking, so I applied at the cab owner's office and soon got employment. I was to bring a certain sum a week to the owner, and whatever was left over, I might keep for myself. There was seldom much left over, but I managed to scrape along somehow. 
The hardest job was to learn my way about, for I reckon that all these mazes that were ever contrived, this city is the most confusing. It's funny that they say that because a uh, little tidbit for you. Um, London cab drivers, like to this day, they have uh, gray brain matter, the most of all the countries in the world, the London cab drivers, because the city is so comprised of so many different streets and avenues and weird places to go and drive around in there that their memory banks are the, are the, are the best in the whole world, London cab drivers. Yep. I had a map beside me, though, and when, once I spotted their principal hotels and stations, I got on pretty well. It was the same time before I found out where my two gentlemen were living. But I inquired and inquired until at last I dropped it. I inquired and I inquired until at last I dropped across them. They were at a boarding house at Camberwell, over the side of the river. When, I once, when once I found them, I knew that I had them at my mercy. I had grown my beard and there was no chance of them recognizing me. I would dog them and follow them until I saw my opportunity. I was determined that they should not escape me again. So he's on them. They're very near doing it for all that. Go where... Let me just back up a little. It's really hard to read these sentences because it's written kind of... I was determined that they should not escape me again. They were very near doing that for all that. Go where they were about London. I always was at their heels. Sometimes I followed them on my cab and sometimes on foot, but the former was the best. For then they could not get away from me. So following on a cab. It was in one it was only early in the morning or late at night that I could earn anything, so that I began to get behind it behindhand with my employee. I did not mind that, however, as long as I could lay my hand upon the men I wanted. So he was a busy uh, young fellow here trying to get, no, I wouldn't say young, but very busy keeping track of these two guys. They were cunning, though. They must have thought there was some chance of their being followed, for they would never go out alone and never after nightfall. During the two weeks, I drove behind them every day. Never once saw them separate. They stuck together like glue. Drebber himself was drunk half the time, but Standerton was not, not to be caught napping. I watched him late and early, but I never saw the ghost of a chance, but I was not discouraged, for something told me that the hour had almost come. My only fear was that this thing in my chest might burst a little too soon to leave my work undone. At last, one evening, I was driving up and down Torquay Terrace, as the street was called, in which they boarded, when I saw a cab drive up to the door. Presently, some luggage was brought out, and after a time, Deborah and Stanerson followed it and drove off. I whipped up my horse and kept within sight of them, feeling ill at ease, for I feared that they were going to shift their quarters. So he thought they were on the move again. At Euston Station, they got out, and I left the boy to hold my horse and follow them on the platform. I heard them ask for the Liverpool train, and the guard answered that one had just gone, and there'd be another one in some hours. Standerson seemed to be put out about that, but Drever was rather pleased than otherwise. I got so close to them in the, in the bustle that I could hear every word that passed between them. Drever said they had a little business of his own to do, and that if the other would wait for him, he would soon rejoin him. His companion remonstrated with him and reminded him that they had to resolve to stick, to stick together. That was their agreement. 
Jebert answered that the matter was a delicate one and that he must go alone. I could not catch what Stenders had said to that, but the other burst out swearing, reminding him that he was nothing more than his paid servant and that must and that he must not presume to dictate to him. So I'm, I'm taking it that the driver said, hey, I'm going to go anyways. And Stanger just said, hey, we have a damn deal here. So no. But uh, Dreber put him in a spot said, hey, you work for me, so I'll do what I want. On that, the secretary gave, up, gave, gave it up as a bad job and simply bargained with him that if he missed the last train, he should rejoin him at Holiday's private hotel. To which Dreber answered that he'd be back on the platform before 11 and made his way out of the station. The moment for which I waited so long had last come. I had my enemies within my power. Together they could protect each other, but singly they were at my mercy. I did not act, however, with undue pre precipitation. My plans were already formed. There is no satisfaction in vengeance unless the offender has time to realize who it is that strikes him and why retribution has come upon them. I had my plans arranged by which I should have the opportunity of making a man who wronged me understand that his old sin have found him out. What goes around comes around. It chanced that some days before a gentleman who had been engaged in looking over some houses in Brixton Road had dropped the key off one of them in my carriage. It was claimed that same evening and returned, but in the interval I had taken a molding of it and had a duplicate constructed. By means of this, I had access to at least one spot in the great city where I could rely upon being free from interruption. Now, how to get the driver to that house was a third problem which I had to solve. So now he found a place where he can actually, you know, exact his revenge, but now we had to find a way to get him over there. Very interesting. He walked down the road, went to one or two liquor shops, staying for nearly half an hour in the last of them. When he came out, he staggered in his walk and was evidently pretty well on. There was a hansom just in front of me, and he hailed it. I followed it so close that the nose of my horse was within a yard of his driver the whole way. We rattled across Waterloo Bridge and th through miles of streets until, to my astonishment, we found ourselves in the back terrace in which he had boarded. I could not imagine what his attention was in returning there, but I went, went on, pulled up my cab a hundred yards or so from the house. He entered it, then his handsome drove away. Give me a glass of water, if you please. My mouth gets dry while I'm talking. So he's definitely saying a lot of words here. So Watson hands him a glass of water and he drank it down. Ah, uh, that's better, he says. Well, I waited for a quarter of an hour or more when suddenly there came a noise like people strolling inside the house. Next moment, the door was flung open and two men appeared. One of them was Derby. The other was a young chap who I've never seen before. Okay, this is when he went to that boarding house and he tried to assault that that young girl remember that in that chapter and then the brother found out and so uh i think it was gregson wanted to charge young sailor for murder because he thought he killed him this is what he's talking about here he's actually witnessing this going on the next moment the door was flung open and two men appeared one of them was drebber the other was a young chap whom i'd never seen before this fellow had drebber by the collar and then when they came to the head of the steps he gave him a shove and kicked him which sent him half across the road you hound, he cried, shaking his stick at him. I'll teach you to insult an honest girl. That's what he did, try to kidnap the daughter. Remember that? He was so hot that I think he would have thrashed Drebber with his own cudgel, only that the curse stayed away. The cab staggered away down the road as fast as, or the, the cur, in other words, Drebber, staggered away down the road as fast as his legs would carry him. 
He ran as far as the corner, and then seeing my cabbie, hailed me and jumped in. Drive me to Halliday's private hotel, said he. So look at that. So this is what happened. When Drever was in there trying to kidnap that young lady from the, uh, from the boarding house, the, uh, the brother kicked his ass out of there. So Drever started running away. And then uh, he saw Jefferson Hope in his cab. He jumped in his cab and told Jefferson to bring him back to Halliday's private hotel where Standard was sand. When I had him fairly inside my cab, my heart jumped so with joy, I feared at least at this last moment my aneurysm might just go wrong. <laughs> I drove along slowly, weighing in my own mind what is best to do. Might take him right out of the country, and then in some deserted lane to have my last interview with him. I almost sighed upon this when he solved the problem for me. The craze for drink I seized him again, and he ordered me to pull up the side of a gin palace. He went in, leaving a word that I should wait for him. There he remained at closing time. When he came out, he had so far gone that I knew that the game was in my own hands. He probably drunk her in a skunk. Don't imagine I intend to kill him in cold blood. It would only have been a rigid justice if I had done so. But I could not bring myself to do that. I had long determined that he should have a show for his life if he chooses to take advantage of it. Among the many billets which I have filled in America during my wandering life, I was once a janitor and a sweeper out of the laboratory at York College. One day, okay, he's going back into, into, into some of the jobs he's done. One day, the professor was lecturing on poisons, and he showed his students some alkaloid, as he so called it, which I still think that's uh, cyanide, but I don't know. Which he had extracted from a South American arrow poison, which was so powerful that the last grain meant instant death. I swallowed the bottle in which the preparation was kept, and when they were all gone, I helped myself to a little of it. I was a fairly good dispenser, so I worked with this alkaloid into a small solid with pills, and each pill I put into a box with a similar pill made without the poison. Remember, remember when I asked us that question? I said, why would you have one that's lethal and one that's not? We're fixing to find out. I determined at the time, when I had my chance, my gentlemen should have each dropped one of the Okay, this is where it is. I determined at that time, when I had my chance, my gentlemen, Stangerson and Drebber, should each have a draw or one of these pill boxes while I eat the pill that remained. It would be quite as deadly and a good deal less noisy than firing a across a handkerchief. From that day, I always had my pill boxes about with me. And that time now, I come to see uh, I'm just going to vote to use them. It was nearer one than twelve, in a wild, bleak night, blowing hard, raining in torrents. Dis dismal as it was outside, I was glad within, so glad that I could have shouted one from pure exultation. If any, any of you gentlemen have ever pined for one thing for a long, during the long twenty years, and suddenly found it within your reach, you would have understand my feelings. I lighted up a cigar and puffed it to steady my nerves, but my hands were trembling, my temples were throbbing in excitement. As I drove, I could see old John Fair and sweet Lucy looking at me in the darkness and smiling at me. Just as plain as I can see all you all in this room. So it's like you've seen their ghosts watching them. All the way, they were ahead, were ahead of me on the east side of the horse until I pulled up to the house in Brixton Road. There was not a soul to be seen, nor a sound to be heard, except for the dripping of the rain. 
When I looked out at the window, I found Drebber all huddled together in a drunken sleep. I shook him by the arm and said, hey, it's time to get out. All right, cabby, he said. I suppose he thought we had come to the hotel that he had mentioned, for he got up without another word and followed me down the garden. I had to walk beside him to keep him steady, for he was still top-heavy. When we came to the door, I opened it and led him into the front room. I gave you my word all that all the way. The father and daughter were walking in front of us. So he's telling him right now that telling Sherlock and Watson and the two policemen that John and uh, Lucy were right there with him the whole time. It's infernally dark in here, said he, stamping about. We will soon have light, I said, striking a match, putting it to a wax candle, which I brought with me. Now, Enoch Drebber, I continued to turn to him and holding a light to my own face. Who am I? He gazed at me with bleared, drunken eyes for a moment. Then he saw the horror spring up in them and convulse his whole features, which showed me that he knew me. He staggered back with a livid face. I thought the perspiration break out on his brow while his teeth chattered. At the sight, I leaned back against the door and laughed loud and long. I've always known that vengeance would be sweet, but I never had hope for this contentment of the soul which now possessed me. Finally, he's probably thinking, You dog, I said. I have hunted you from Salt Lake City to St. Petersburg, and you have always escaped me. Now, at last, your wanderings have come to an end. For either you or I shall never see tomorrow's sunrise. One of us is going to be dying tonight. He shrunk still further away as I spoke, and I could see on his face he thought I was mad. So I was, for the time. The pulses in my tumble beat like sledgehammers, and I believe I would have had a fit of some sort if the blood had not gushed from my nose and relieved me. What did you think of Lucy Ferrier now? I cried, locking the door and shaking the key in his face. The punishment has been slow in coming, but has overtaken you at last. I saw his coward lips tremble as I spoke. He would have begged for his life, but he knew well that it was useless. Would you murder me? He stammered. There is no murder, I answered. Who talks of murdering a mad dog? What mercy have you had you upon my poor darling when you dragged her from the slaughtered father and bore her away to your cursed, shameless harem? It was not I who killed her father, he cried. But it was you who broke her innocent heart, I shrieked, thrusting the box before him. Let the high God judge between us. Choose and eat. There is death in one and life in the other. I shall take what you leave behind. Let us see if there is justice upon the earth, or if we are ruled by chance. So he's taken, now we know why there's a, a poison pill and a placebo pill. Because Drebber's going to take the first pick, and in, uh, in um, Jefferson Hope's mind, if he picks the right one, justice has been served. Let's see what happens. He cowered away with wild cries and prayers for mercy, but I drew my knife and held it to his throat until he obeyed me. Then I swallowed the other one, and we stood facing each other in silence for a minute or more. So they both took the pill. One's poison, one's not. This is getting really good. Then I swallowed the other, and we stood facing each other in silence for a minute or more, waiting to see which was to live and which one was to die. Shall I ever forget the look which came over his face when the first warning pangs told him that the poison was in his system? I laughed as I saw it, and they held Lucy's marriage ring in front of his eyes. It was but for a moment, for the action of the alkaloid is rapid. A spasm of pain contorted his features. He threw his hands out in front of him, staggering, and then with a hoarse cry, fell heavily upon the floor. I turned him over with my foot and placed my hand upon his heart. 
There was no movement. He was dead. By now the blood had been streaming from my nose, but I had not taken notice of it. I don't know what it was that put it in my head to write upon the wall with it. Perhaps it was some mischievous idea of settling the police upon the wrong track, setting the police on the wrong track. For I felt lighthearted and cheerful. I remember a journal being found in New York with the rush written above him, and it was argued that at the time of the newspapers that the secret societies must have done it. I guess that's what puzzled New Yorkers would puzzle Londoners too. So I dipped my finger in the blood in my own blood and put it on a convenient place on the wall. Then I walked down to my cab, found that there was nobody above, and that night was still very wild. I had driven some distance when I put my hand in my pocket where I usually kept Lucy's ring, and I found that it was not there. I was thunderstruck at this, for it was the only memento that I had of her. Thinking that I might have dropped it when I stooped over Dever's body, I drove back, leaving my cab in the side street. I went boldly up to the house, for I was ready to dare anything rather than lose that ring. When I arrived there, I walked out of the arms of the police, police officer who was coming out, and only managed to disarm suspicions by trending pretending to be hopelessly drunk. Okay, so you remember that when, uh, that was with John Rance. John Rance said there was a drunken idiot down by the gate, and uh, it was all he could do to just keep him standing on his feet, and they told the bloke to go home. And that's when uh, Sherlock said, well, you just let our guy go. So that was how Enoch Drebber came to his end. All I had to do now was then to do the same much for Stangerson and so pay off John Ferrier's debt. So Lucy's debt's been paid. Now we're going to go up to John Ferrier's debt. I knew that he was staying at the Halliday's private hotel. And I hung about there all day. But he never came out. I fancied that he suspected something when Drebber fell to put in an appearance. He was cunning. Which Stangerson and always was on his guard. If he thought he could keep me off by staying indoors, he was very much mistaken. I soon found out which was, which was the window of his bedroom. And... And early next morning, I took advantage of some ladders. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Remember we seen a couple chapters back, he was coming down these ladders. Uh, the kids' song. The uh, Sherlock Holmes' little crew there. Early next morning, I took advantage of some ladders, which were lying in a lane behind the hotel. And so I made my way into his room in the gray of the dawn. I woke him up and told him that the hour had come when he was to answer for his life that had been taken so long before. I described Drebber's death to him, and I gave him the same choice of the poison pills. Instead of grasping at the chance of safety with that offered him, he sprang from his bed and flew at my throat. In self-defense, I stabbed him in the heart. It would have been the same in any case, for Providence would have never allowed his guilty hand to pick out anything but the poison. So he was pretty sure he was going to kill himself anyways. I have a little more to say than a, than a then and it's all well, for I am done about done. I went on cabinet for another day or two, intending to keep keep at it until I could save enough money to take me take me back to America. I was standing in the yard when a ragged youngster asked if there was a cabbie there called Jefferson Hope, and said that the cab was wanted by a gentleman at two twenty two B Baker Street. We know who that is. I went round suspecting no harm, and the next thing I knew this young man here had the bracelets on my wrists as neatly as the shackles ever had been in my life. <laughs> He's talking about when Sherlock uh, handcuffed him. That's the whole story, my gentlemen. You may consider me to be a murderer, but I had by hold that I am just as much an officer of justice as you are. So thrilling that the man's narrative had been in his manner was so impressive that we sat silent and absorbed everything. 
Even the professional detectives, blazed as they were in every detail of the crime, appeared to be keenly interested in the man's story. When we finished, we sat there for some minutes in stillness, which was only broken by the scratching of Lestrade's pencil as he gave it finishing touches to his shorthand account. So Lestrade took down every word. There's only one point which I'd like a little more information on, Sherlock Holmes asked. Who was your accomplice who came for the ring which I advertised? The prisoner winked at my friend jocosely. Like you say, ah, yes. I can tell you my own secrets, he said, but I don't get other people into trouble. I saw your ad, and I thought it might be a plant, or it might be the ring, or it might be the ring that I wanted. My friend volunteered to go and see. I think you'll own, he did it smartly. Without a doubt, that's said Sherlock heartedly, without a doubt. Now, gentlemen, the inspector remarked gravely, the forms of the law must be complied with, and on Thursday the prisoner will be brought before the magistrates and your attendance will be required. Until then, I'll be responsible for him. He rang a bell as he spoke, and Jefferson Hope was led off by a couple of warders, while my friend and I made our way back to the station and took a cab back to Baker Street. End of the chapter. Wow. What a chapter that was. So, now we know the story from every side. Very good. And Jefferson's awaiting trial. And I'm going to tell you right now, the last chapter of the book, next Sunday, is called The Conclusion. And I'm sure it's just going to be about how all the how Sherlock and Watson surmise all their every all the facts that they found in the case during the course of the case and how everything came to be and how Sherlock deduced all his deductions with Watson. And then after that, the book is done. Then we go on to the next book. So we made it to the last chapter, folks, next weekend. I hope you enjoyed the book as much as I have. It's very interesting, really. A lot of truth in there, a lot of fiction in there. It's our job to figure out which is which. Everybody have a good week, and I'll see you next Sunday. Thanks for listening.